Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Good to be here today. This is the third of four of five sermons we're going to be looking at. Um, Again, Justin is on sabbatical for the month of July, and it happens to be a uh, a month where there's five weeks, five Sundays instead of just four. So um, two weeks is all you got left, and Justin will be back. And I'll be very glad for that, too. It takes sort of a a big burden to uh, prepare sermons and I'm not thinking about anything else all week but the sermon, so it'd be good to have that pressure off of me and back on to Justin. So, <laughs> all right. Well, what we did last week, or just sort of a back up a little bit, our our format for these sermons is there. Well, first, the subject of the sermons are, excuse me, the messianic or the royal or what we call kingly psalms, and there's was five of them we're going to look at. And the format is we, we examine a psalm in its original context, uh, what, what it meant to the people that read the psalm. We don't jump ahead in scripture and try to backfill or, or give it any other meaning, just what they would have understood when this psalm was written. And then from there, once that's understood, then we jump ahead into the old, latter parts of the Old Testament if necessary, but mainly to the New Testament to see how they actually used this psalm, how they did it. We looked at Psalm 2, uh, we looked at Psalm 8, and last week we began Psalm 110. Now, there, there's a couple problems with Psalm 110. One, it's a very difficult psalm to understand, interpret, and explain in a way that I, I, I'd hope people would benefit from. So we spent about 40 minutes last week just trying to get a, a basic understanding, get our arms around what this psalm means. Uh, what is trying to say to the people of that day. Then we had about 10, 15 minutes to examine a psalm in the New Testament. And the problem with Psalm 110, it's used 15 times. It's the most quoted, referred to psalm in the New Testament. So trying to do that justice in 10 minutes just didn't work. Uh, so what, we, what we're going to do is we looked at uh, uh, Acts chapter 2 and saw how Peter used it. And then we said we're going to spend another sermon looking at how Paul used it and, if possible, the writer of Hebrews used it. So today we're going to look at how this psalm was used by the Apostle Paul, particularly in his prayer to the Ephesians in chapter 1, uh, I believe it's 15 through 23. But I want to kind of back up a little bit and just spend a few minutes sort of reorienting ourselves to the psalm, kind of getting an idea of what it said, refresh our minds, uh, look at how Peter used it. Again, just very briefly, I want to add one more element to uh, Peter's sermon that we sort of missed last week that I think will help us in understanding how Paul used it. And then we'll see how Paul sort of takes Peter's idea and just applies it in a different way, expands it a little bit and applies it in a different situation. So uh, looking at this psalm, let me read it real quick. Then we'll have a word of prayer, then we will uh, begin. Uh, Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord send forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter the kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter the chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And if you want to know what all this means in detail, listen to last week's sermon. We're going to just basically cover the the basics of what we looked at last week. So all these details, the the strange ideas of lifting his brook up from the head, of uh, uh, the dew from the ground, the youth, all these are explained in more detail uh, last week. But basically this uh, psalm falls into two categories. It's basically two promises that are being given to a king. And there's three actors in this psalm. First, there is the Lord. Uh, It says, the Lord said to my Lord. This Lord here is the word for Jehovah. It's the covenant God of Israel, the one who made a covenant with Israel is a special name given to Israel that they use to refer to their God. It's almost like giving God a name, a specific name. They used it to refer to God who loved them, who is faithful to them, who entered a covenant relationship with them. So it's a very uh, intimate 
word that the Jews used to refer to the Lord, to their Lord. Then there's a second person, and that is there's uh, this second Lord. So this one Lord is speaking to this second Lord, and there's a third person who, in a sense, is recording or telling us what was actually said from this one Lord to the other. So three people, Jehovah, the Lord, the, the God of Israel, the Lord of heaven and earth. There's this second, it appears to be lower Lord, lesser Lord, and then there's the person telling us what is happening. Now we know from the use of this in the Old Testament or New Testament that the person telling this is David himself. So this is David who is actually speaking here. And this Lord is saying to the other Lord, he's promising him two things. One, he's promising that he will sit at his right hand until his enemies become a footstool for his feet. And we saw last week the idea of being at the right hand of a king was a supreme position of authority. It was a great honor, a dignity above all other dignities in the kingdom to be given the right hand of a king. You were, in a sense, the viceroy or the ruler of that king or in in his stead. You ruled along with him. Again, a greatest honor, privilege, dignity, or authority that could be given to another was to be seated at the right hand of a king. So the second Lord is given this place of supreme authority by being given a position at the right hand of the Lord God of heaven. This would mean that all that is under the authority of Jehovah, of the Lord, is under this second king's authority. And the second word king there, it can be master. It's just a normal word that was used between a a servant and his master. So it doesn't mean, it's not synonymous with the first first word, Lord. It's a different word, Lord. It's sort of a lesser uh, authority. But it can be somebody also uh, possesses great authority. Now, the second promise is in verse 4. I'm sorry, verse, verse, uh, yeah, verse 4. And it, it promises this king a, a priesthood. Now, this is significant because in Israel, time of Israel during this time, the offices of king and priest were kept completely separate. There's no idea of a priest king, but if you look at the other nations, they had kings that were also priests. That was something that didn't happen in Israel. So there's a reason why this oath takes a more solemn note. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, as if this is something that's almost unbelievable to do. But he says it, that this king is also going to be a priest, and it's after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, as we said last week very briefly, was just a priest king who uh, visited Abraham after the uh, victory of the... He had a battle with the king of Elam. Uh, Abraham was victorious. He was walking home uh, with with his uh, spoils. Uh, This king Melchizedek comes out and blesses Abraham. And it says Melchizedek was a a priest after the most high God and was also a king of Jerusalem. So this priest king is sort of the pattern or the office that this king is going to follow. He's going to be not only a sovereign, a king, but he's going to be a priest as well. And then we saw there's other information given here that I don't think is important, but it talks about his army, this king's army. It'll be a group of subjects who who freely, lovingly, willingly, out of adoration and love for their king, who who serve him freely. Uh, There will be an innumerable number of these people. There will be a glorious, holy army. Uh, There will be innumerable and bring hope and life, as can be seen by the uses of the words do, womb, dawn, uh, to describe them. So they're going to be a a mighty, uh, loving army who loves their king, serves him out of adoration and not simply they're not going to come simply to destroy they're going to come to bring life to bring hope and to bring peace once the enemies are destroyed now that's basically what we covered in 40 minutes last week um now the first scripture we looked at was the Pentecostal sermon in Acts 2. And what Peter's trying to explain here uh, to the group is the source of the spiritual phenomena that they're observing, namely the apostles speaking in tongues and other languages to the dysphoria Jews who came to Jerusalem for the uh, Passover event. They came there, they spoke different languages. They'd been out of Israel for centuries. They had different languages that they spoke. They came, uh, visited Jerusalem, and during this phenomena, they heard the apostles who were simply Galileans, ignorant Galileans who didn't go to school to study other languages. These men were speaking their language. They heard their language, the, the word of God in their language. And that's what Peter is explaining. How could this have happened? How could these men have done this? So the Pharisees' reason was, well, they were drunk. And what 
Peter does is he shows that this activity that you're seeing is a spiritual activity, God sending his spirit to his people just like he did in Joel chapter 2. And again, it's not saying that everything in Joel chapter 2 is going to happen, but he's saying this is a spiritual phenomena of God sending his spirit to his people like he promised in examples like Joel 2. There's many examples of the Bible in the Old Testament where God sends his spirit to his people. And by identifying Joel chapter 2, Peter is saying this is what is happening. Remember, all those places God's promised to send his spirit to his people. What we are seeing is that very same thing happening right now. Now, what's important, what I left out last week that I want to sort of add to this is, is what did the Jews think of the spirit? What was their view of the spirit? Uh, what was he going to do? What did he do and what was he going to do? Well, first of all, we saw last week this very briefly how uh, the Spirit of God, when the earth was created, uh, it said he hovered over the face of the earth. The idea of hovering here is a picture of a bird brooding over its nest, protecting, uh, encompassing its, neck, its nest. Somehow, uh, the idea here is that the Spirit was intimately involved in the creation of life on earth. Uh, scriptures explicitly say this. Job says the Spirit Spirit of God has made me and breathed, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Psalm 104, you send forth your spirit, and they, that, that is life on the earth, uh, they are created. You renew the face of the ground. It also says if you, when you withdraw your spirit, they die. They're dead. Uh, he brings life and justice. Isaiah 32, 14, for the place is forsaken. The populated, populous city is deserted. The hills and the watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture for flocks, until the spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruit of the field. So what is it that, that brings this a desert to life, this desolate city to life again. It's the spirit being poured out upon it. It will bring life to this desolate place. He gives life to, life to the people of God. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowering streams. This is, again, all work that the Spirit of God is going to do when he's poured out upon the people. Uh, think of the, the great prophecy in Ezekiel 36, where there's this, this massive valley filled with these dry bones, bleached bones. And God asks Ezekiel, uh, can these bones live? And his response is, only you know, Lord. So it says there's this great sound, this great uh, clanking sound as all these bones are brought together to form skeletons. And it says uh, the sinew connects those bones together. And then they're covered with flesh and covered with skin. And yet they're, they're still dead lying there in his valley. And then I, he's told to prophesy one more time. And it says, the winds came from the four corners of the earth and filled these bodies with its breath. And the bodies came up alive, a vast, mighty army. And then explaining that to Ezekiel, he says, one day I'm going to do this to you. I'm going to pour my spirit out upon you and you will live. Another one of my favorite examples of the spirit other than Ezekiel 36 is another passage in Ezekiel. I believe it's 47, uh, where God shows him a river. Uh, a river starts out from the temple as a little trickle. And as it flows out across the land of Israel, it, it expands to this massive river. And he tells uh, Ezekiel to walk into the river, get a measuring rod, and walk out into it. So he goes out, uh, I think, 1,000 cubits, which is 1,500 feet. And it's up to his ankles. He goes out another 1,500 feet. It's up to his knees. He goes out another 1,500 feet. It's up to his waist. Again, it's up to his neck, and he has to swim. He can't ford the river. And, the, and he said, on its banks, he said, are these trees that feed the nations. He said, this water, uh, it's so massive that it flows into the oceans and the seas and turns them fresh. It, it's filled with fish. Men just cast their nets into it and, and pull the fish in. Everything is made fresh with this water. There's no sea, no salt water, no ocean. And uh, the question, what is that river? Well, it, it's a reference to the Spirit. That's what the Spirit does. It comes and it brings life wherever it goes. Now, with that in mind, with the average Jew thinking that in his mind about what the Spirit is, Peter's going to say something amazing. 
He's going to say, what happened here is the Spirit has come. These prophecies are being fulfilled, and Jesus is the one who did this. See, in latter parts of the Old Testament, once the Israelites are taken from the land, once they're uh, being judged and, and ripped from the land and brought into exile, until that time, the promises all seem to center around the land. If they were in the land, they would receive an inheritance, and promises would flow forth from the land and be a blessing to them. But once they're in exile, they're no longer in the land. Where does their hope come from? Well, that's when God starts promising his spirit. And the spirit almost becomes synonymous with promise. And that's what Peter says, that Jesus, the one you crucified, has sent forth the promise that was prophesied in the Old Testament, the promise of the spirit. Now, how could he say somebody like Jesus himself sent the spirit? Here's a man who... who was born almost a pauper, uh, worked as a carpenter for the first part of his life. Um, he probably never traveled more than 40, 50 miles away from his house, never taught at a school, uh, never was a professor, never commanded an army, had a, a, a quiet band of disciples, never wrote a book, simply wrote in the sand. How could this person be the one who sent the Spirit? Again, it would have been an amazing thing for a Jew to hear that, that this guy here sent the Spirit, He's been given the promise, and he's brought about these great prophecies that God prophesied long ago. Well, that's basically what Peter is saying here. And how does he justify it? Well, he justifies it in two ways. First, by proving that Jesus did rise from the dead. We're not going to cover that again, but he does say to them that, look, this Jesus, uh, that God raised him from the dead. He brought him uh, from death. He said, you are witnesses to this. Uh, you yourself saw this. Um, and then after that, he goes into Psalm 110 and shows that not only was he raised from the dead, but God sat him at his right hand, fulfilling what was promised in Psalm 110. So pointing to 110, he says, this is what Christ has done. He now is the one who God, David spoke of, who is at the right hand of God, and all authority and all power has been given to this one. And he's taken that authority and all that power and sent forth the Spirit to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament this very day. Again, where does he get it from? He gets it from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. And he closes that sermon basically by saying, and God has made him both Lord and Christ. You who, you, whom, him who you crucified. And remember their response. They were terrified. Why? Because they realized that they had killed the one who was at the right hand of God. Remember what, what happened to the enemies at the right hand of, of, of the one who sat at the right hand of God? They'd be, they'd be destroyed. Uh, they'd be corpses that, that fill up the nations. Uh, he would execute them on the day of his wrath. Now they realize that they were the objects of this king's anger and animosity. And so they asked Peter, what shall I do? What do we do? How do we come out from under this curse that we've put ourselves under by killing this very king who God has appointed? And the response is believe or repent. Repent, turn from your idols, turn to Christ, embrace him, and believe upon him. So there's escape. So again, that gives an idea of how powerful this passage was that it gives Christ the authority to send forth the all-powerful, almighty spirit to begin to fulfill the prophecies that God made to his people. Now, that, that's the first uh, usage of it. Now, the next one is in Ephesians 1, chapter 15 through 23. You go ahead and just turn in your Bibles. I'm not sure how much we'll refer to it, but I, I like to include quotes in my notes from the scripture. So, But uh, just be there in case you want to look down. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. Now, let me go ahead and read it real quick, and then we'll um, do some examination of this passage. One of my favorite passages in Scripture, all of Paul's prayers. I, I love reading them and memorizing and learning them. It says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and of knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his call, 
the hope to which he called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked through Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power, and dominion above all, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, there's way more in here that we could ever possibly uh, attempt to cover in the remainder of a sermon, but there's a lot here we can learn about how the Jews, uh, the writers, the, the apostles used Psalm 110 to encourage and to bless the church. Uh, first of all, uh, this section, uh, you notice, is a prayer. It's one of two prayers that Paul offers in the uh, book of Ephesians. And now, don't get the idea that there are, are, are different things that he prayed for for each church. Uh, there wasn't an Ephesians prayer, a Thessalonian prayer. There are prayers in those books, but Paul pretty much prays the same thing for all the churches, just using different languages, uh, different language, different terms, different emphases, but this is something that every church needs, not just the church of Ephesus. So it's very important here to understand what Paul is praying for. Again, he uses different language. He may emphasize certain aspects of the things he prays for, but besides that, they're, they're amazingly similar in their nature. Now, the first prayer in Ephesians, it comes right after a long eulogy uh, where he praises God for the blessings given to us through Christ. You kids know what a eulogy is. When somebody dies, what do we do? We give a speech about them, right? And what do we say? We say nice things. We don't say he killed puppies and stole pacifiers from babies' mouths. We say nice things about him, right? Well, that's what a eulogy is. He, he's speaking of the salvation that, he, that cr comes to us through Christ in the first 15, 14 verses. And uh, again, he, he's saying what a great salvation this actually is. So he spends 14 verses praising God in a good way for the salvation that he has given us. Um, again, right after this eulogy, he praises God for the blessings through Christ. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he begins this description of what these blessings actually are. Uh, grace is like sanctification, a predestination, adoption, redemption, a forgiveness. Uh, he says he lavished us with these blessings according to the riches of his grace and made known to us the mystery of his will. Uh, he gave us an inheritance through the Holy Spirit. He sealed us with the Holy Spirit. In doing that, he sealed our inheritance that we would one day receive. And there's a, a, a deep, sublime, beautiful description of these blessings that have been given to us through Christ. And in a prayer, which starts in verse 15, Paul is simply asking that the believers at Ephesus be made more aware of these blessings. That's what he wants. He doesn't want to just describe him. He wants God to work in them in such a way that they'll be made more aware of these blessings in a way that will actually change change who they are in the way that they live, in the way that they walk. Uh, the first request, and there's three petitions here, basically. Uh, the first is a supernatural, spirit-derived knowledge of him that he may give you. Again, this is God doing this for the people. He wants God to open their eyes and show them these things. First of all, it's that he may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. And the word spirit here in some uh, translations, uh, the King James, I believe the New American Standard, all have a lowercase s as if it's just some kind of a human spirit or the idea of something. Uh, where it's most likely, that'll be very strongly, that it's a reference to the Holy Spirit here. Spirit of wisdom, spirit of revelation. We can go back in the Old Testament and see how the spirit is uh, very strongly connected to the idea of wisdom and the idea of revelation. So the spirit-induced wisdom and a spirit-induced revelation. The Holy Spirit is going to bring these things to you if God uh, does what I ask. So the first is this knowledge. Second, they request that they may know, um, they may, that they basically may have hope, uh, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, um, Again, he, he wants this knowledge to result in hope uh, that which with, he has called us, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glories, glorious inheritance in the saints. So he doesn't want only knowledge. He wants them to have hope, this knowledge to result in a hope of the calling that they have. Now, the third request uh, that they may know the greatness of God's power towards them. Now this, uh, the second, third petition are, are sort of in parallel here. So um, this 
this, when we look at the second one, we have to take the verb in the second one and bring it down with the third. He wants, what, wants us to know, or he says in the second one, in what is the immeasurable greatness of the power towards us who believe. So he wants us also to know what is the, this great power. Uh, now, this third request, we could call the climax of the prayer. It's the most important part of the prayer. Everything else seems to be building upon this final petition, this final request. Uh, one of the primary reasons being is that it is, and part of the, the reason it's important was that in part of the world where Ephesians lived, uh, there are a number of various cults and mystery religions that created in people a, a deep dread of hostile powers. That there were the, these forces of evil uh, that would encompass people, that would control people, that would uh, just devastate their lives. And they firmly believed that these things actually existed. And the people who came to Christ out of this environment probably had a residual fear of these demons and of these powers that they still had some control over their lives. You go to a place like Haiti, and even the Christians still believe in, in many ways that the powers that were there in voodoo still have some influence over the people. I know this is very strong in places like the Philippines as well. Yeah, they come, they, they adopt some of the tenets of Christianity, but still believe that these powers have influence over their lives. Um, and Paul is emphasizing here, no, that, that these powers, uh, whatever power exists, whatever power there is, that Christ has control over that power. And let me just read it again. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God. So any power that existed, uh, any power that was there in the world, they may have been real powers, uh, evil, tyrannical powers uh, that create a fear among these people. Paul says it's under somebody else's control. They no longer have the authority or the power that they once had when you were outside of Christ. So the focus of this prayer on this petition is for knowledge of his power, and it would have been very significant to the readers of this letter. Now, we also see the importance of this last petition, is that Paul is going to spend a great deal of time uh, expanding on what this power is. Uh, it's just not some a blanket power, some empty power. Uh, it's a very specific power that Paul is going to explain. Again, that you may know, he doesn't just say, and that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of this power towards us who believe, amen. Okay, well, what power, Paul? What do you mean by power? There's a lot of ideas about power. What explicitly do you mean? And Paul is going to expand on that. What is this power that he wants these people to know? He knows they want knowledge. He wants them to have hope. And he wants them to have power. And the hope and knowledge are things that are, are pretty clear is what they are. But the power is what he's going to expand upon. And again, it pretty much follows what Peter has said already in Acts 2. But he's going to add go one step further with what this power actually is. Remember, Peter's sermon was to show that Jesus had sent his spirit, and it was an unfathomable display of power and authority. Um, and there are two things that he used to demonstrate this. Remember, the first was that God raised him from the dead. That was his first proof, God raised him from the dead. And I also want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. And uh, Again, what Paul wants to know about this power is that, first of all, it was according to the greatness that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So like Peter, he ties us, first of all, to the resurrection of the dead. And this is the first aspect of this power, that it raised him from the dead. And this power is the same power that is exerted to us as believers in Christ. Again, this is a life-giving power that he's speaking about here. One commentator says this, It emanates from the Father, raises Jesus from the dead at the resurrection, endows him with new vitality, and finally proceeds from him as the life-giving, vitalizing force of the new creation and a new life that Christians in union with Christ experience and live. So the power of the resurrection is the power that gives life. It brings life to the people of God. Let's take the, just the idea of, of how powerful death is to us. Let's say all the nations came together in, in one way in, uh, in peace, and they took a child. They said, we want to do everything we can to ensure that this child will live forever. 
And every resource they had, we took all the armies, disbanded all the armies, uh, all the other medical research we do with cancer and the flu and COVID, all of that money was channeled in trying to get this child to live forever. From the day he was born, everything was done to him to keep him living forever. All the resources of the world were poured into this one effort. Would we succeed? Certainly not. Certainly not. Yet, Paul here is speaking of a power that actually does succeed. It brings life, eternal life. It overturns the power of death itself in bringing life to people. So that's the first thing Paul says here. This power that I'm talking about, it's not just a a weak earthly authority. It is the power that has overturned death. Those who come under the authority and influence of this power will never die. They will die physically, but in their death, they will be raised to life just like Christ himself was. So you see the importance of why Paul wants them to understand this life. If if it can overcome death, then it can overcome anything. If it's ours, then who can be against us if this power over death has been given to us? So again, the power he's speaking of, first of all, it is the power of the resurrection. It's granted uh, to all who believe. But it's not the only aspect of this power that Paul is concerned about. There's also another aspect that he wants to draw out, and that is uh, the authority that Christ himself has with this power. Not just power to give life, but it's a a power to rule. Uh, We have great powers in in our our world. We have leaders, we have those uh, uh, governors, we have CEOs, executives, and we give all these men power. But, but their power is limited in many ways. A CEO has power over his company, but he doesn't have power over the next company. Even the power he has in his company is limited by regulations and laws. We have uh, presidents in our uh, country. We have senators and congressmen, mayors, governors. They have power, but, but it's limited in many ways. Uh, even a king who has total, complete authority, uh, tyrannical authority over a nation, only has it over that nation, so it's limited there as well. Uh, there's another limitation, is that once these men die, their authority is gone. It's no longer existing. Well, Paul is talking about Christ, that this power is unlimited. Completely unlimited. Again, look at what he lists here. He's at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule, all authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So not only is his uh, authority here, not only does it extend throughout the universe, but it extends throughout time. He's not going to simply die and his authority go away. So this is an, an unlimited, absolute authority that Christ himself bears. The one who saved us bears. So not only does it give life, but it has authority to do whatever he pleases. Now, how does Paul demonstrate this? Where does he go back into the scripture? What does he pull out of the Old Testament to show that Christ does have this power? Well, he takes it from Psalm 110. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now that one little phrase there, we don't see a a quotation around that like we often do with Old Testament quotes. And there's there's a reason for that. There's the idea of of what is called in the Old Testament or New Testament uh, intertextuality. And and it's when, a little bit academic here, it's when uh, somebody is so influenced by a text, by something that they read or something that they're involved in, that that writing unconsciously influences what they're writing right now. And the point here is that the Old New Testament writers were so overwhelmed and influenced by the Old Testament text and theology that when they wrote, it just naturally flowed out into their writings without putting quotes or saying, thus saith the Lord. So as Paul thinks about the authority of Christ, he, he doesn't even have to think, okay, where does the Old Testament talk about that? It, it just comes out in his writing. Uh, when you speak about authority, it automatically, Psalm 110, came to his mind. There's a famous book that, that I read years ago that probably influenced my, my, my preaching and my study more than any other book uh, by a guy named Richard Hayes, and the title of the book is called Echoes of Scripture in Paul. So he saw these references to scriptures as echoes of what Paul understood and believed about the Old Testament. Remember, echo, it's not quite as loud as the original voice, but, but it's there, it can be heard. So all through the scripture, uh, these echoes of the Old Testament are being weaved throughout their writings. Maybe unconsciously, maybe not, but they're there. And that's what's happening here. When he thought about Christ's authority, Christ's absolute power over the universe, 
he went to Psalm 110. Didn't even have to think, okay, what verse is that? It came out naturally, organically. So he pulls in Psalm 110 to demonstrate that Christ does have this authority. He does have all the power. He adds the word in heavenly places. That's not in the original text, is it? But we saw last week the idea that Christ was, that, that this king was at the Lord's right hand. Well, where is the Lord's throne at? Well, it's in heaven. So where is this king sitting? He's sitting at the right hand of God's throne in heaven. So it would have been naturally for Paul to simply add this interpretation in the heavens. So he's there in the heavens, and all authority, all power has been given to him. Now the implications of this are spelled out in verse 21. How far above the heavens is it? How far above the earth is it? Far above, he says, all rule, authority, and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Again, we've seen this already, the idea of it being a complete, absolute authority. There's not one realm of authority uh, in this age or in the age to come that is not under the power of Christ. Now, there's debate about what each of these categories mean, what rule, authority, dominion, uh, name mean, uh, but it's clear based on 110 that every conceivable power is encompassed with the mighty reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not one area of our lives, of anybody's life, is outside of his authority and his control. But Paul goes one step further than Peter does. Actually, goes two steps further than Peter does. Uh, we also hear the echo of Psalm 8 in here as well. It says, and he has put all things under his feet and gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So not only does he link Psalm 110 with Christ's authority, but also he brings Psalm 8 under Christ's authority too. So when you look at the world, uh, you don't see man having an absolute authority over the earth. Man was given this dominion in the garden, but it, it was forfeited in many ways. Whenever we see a, a storm that comes and wipes out a city or tornado, whenever we see a, a cloud of locusts come and, and destroy people's food, uh, lightning, uh, sinking of ships, floods, all of this shows that man doesn't have a good grip on his dominion. That there's things in this earth, in this world, that can outdo out, or strip our dominion or power and authority away. But Paul says, no, this is not fulfilled by men. It's not fulfilled by uh, President Biden. It's not fulfilled by Putin. This authority, this submission under, Christ, under the feet is fulfilled by Christ himself. So Psalm 8, since the fall comes to be seen, not as simply a general dominion that mankind has that God gave him but a dominion that is exercised by Christ. In a sense, what Paul's doing here is he's taking this authority, and it would seem obvious, but again, the apostles often take obvious things and bring them to the next level many times. So he has all this authority, all this power over everything that exists, and it says, and God has taken all that authority and put it under his feet. In other words, he exercises an actual, real, living authority over all that exists. Not just in theory, but it's actually under his feet. He is ruling over these things now. Just as man should have been ruling over the creation, Christ himself now is ruling over that creation. So again, giving great encouragement to the people that Paul is writing to. They're under him. Uh, again, they will be judged by their obedience to him. Uh, not only their to judge them, but he is to bring them into submission eventually. We see this in the fact that uh, in heaven there will be nations, uh, the new Jerusalem. There will be a no night. The glory of the Lord will give light, and by its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So he gives, he's given authority not simply to destroy the nations, but also to bring them into submission. I was having a chat last week after uh, last week's sermon. And uh, again, the enemies are just not meant to be destroyed. They're to be brought into submission. So what Christ is doing right now to the church is a fulfillment of Psalm 8. He's bringing that into submission to him by his love, by his mercy, by his grace. But his enemies are going to be brought into submission by a different way, but by judgment, by warfare, by absolute destruction. So there's a two-pronged approach to this submission. One, through his love, bringing them in, as obedient servants to him, his disciples, his church. And secondly, to the world where he judges it and destroys it with his anger and wrath. So 
That's the idea of submission. But Paul, again, he goes one step further here. One step further, which is just, to me, the most amazing part of this passage here. He, he takes th- this king and that has all this authority, all this power, and he gives it as a special possession to who? To the church, exactly. It's not just there to destroy, not just there uh, to bring the world into submission. It's there for the church. He gave him as what? Head over the church. So it's as if Paul describes God as taking this man, this all-powerful man, and saying, okay, he's your special possession, the church. He's yours. He will help you. He will strengthen you. He will vitalize you. The idea of a head here denotes all those things. A head is the source of strength. Uh, It's a sustaining power. Uh, The mainspring of our activity comes from our head. It's the center of our unity. It's the very seat of our life. The head is a, a cohesive, enabling power for the body. And that's what Christ is to us. And that's what God made him in doing what he did. So he takes this, this great savior, this great king, and gives him to the church as he is your head. He will guide you. He will direct you. He will be the one who protects you and keep you. So again, a a wonderful blessing that Paul speaks of here. And then this one phrase here, which is a a very odd phrase, but it really adds to what's being said here, uh, which is the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he describes this church as having received Christ as its head. Then he says this church is the fullness of, now, what does that idea of fullness mean? How is the church the fullness? Well, if you look at this word in the Old Testament, uh, whenever God is displaying his glory, it's often described as filling something. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, where God appears to Isaiah before his commission. Uh, it says that his train, uh, the, the trail of his uh, robe, which was his glory, said it, it filled the temple. Just filled the temple, completely filled it. Um, Isaiah 43, 13 says, The Lord and the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Uh, Jeremiah 23, 24, uh, Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? He asks, Where can man go and hide from me? So do I not fill heaven and earth? Uh, Haggai 2, 7, I will shake the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill the house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So the idea of of God's glory, of being in something, whatever it's in something, it fills whatever it is, wherever it's in. That's the idea here that Paul's using, taking the same word from the Septuagint translation that this word fullness is translated as, and pulling it into the New Testament to show that the church, what it's designed to do is to display the glory of God himself. And he uses the idea of fullness. It is the fullness of his glory, him who fills all and all. Now think about that. God fills everything. He's everywhere. There's not a particular place in a universe that he is not present and active. Yet he chooses in a specific way to fill the church, to be present in the church so that people can look at it and see something about his glory, something about his grace, beauty, and majesty that you cannot see anywhere else in the universe. Remember what Peter says about the angels? The angels who who stand before God's throne, who can look God in the eye and his face. And it says, they look down upon us to learn about us. They they watch us carefully and inquisitively to see what God is doing to us. There's things that the church displays about God that even the angels in heaven cannot see. And this is the purpose of the church. This is why it takes a head like Christ to make us who we are, to give us what we need. Now, some applications for this briefly. Um, When we think about this, about Christ being the head, him being powerful, you know, when we we have big, big things happening, uh, you know, big, broad, uh, universal, worldly things, we're pretty good at putting our trust in that. You know, the idea that, um, you know, the WHO is created this vaccine because uh, they want to wipe out a certain number of the population, so they give us this vaccine, so, you know, 10% of the population dies, you know. If you believe that, we can get our idea around that and say, yes, God is sovereign over that. Or that Bill Gates is buying up all the farmland in America so he can starve Americans. We can say, yeah, Christ is sovereign over those things. Um, Ideas of governments being under his control. 
control, uh, powers, authorities. In the big picture of things, we say, yeah, I I could see God is in control of those things. Christ is sovereign in directing those things. But we often have trouble when, when it's smaller things that affect us personally, that we, we stop thinking that way. You know, the, the fender bender, where the guy uh, crosses the lane and smashes into your car when you're late for work. You know, what do we do? We get out, oh, I can't believe this, and call the guy names, curse under our breath at him. Well, if Christ is sovereign over how he controls the heart of the EU, is he not sovereign over that car driving down the street? If he brings about his purposes through nations and kings, and they do his will, whether we approve of it or not, does he not have that same authority and same power to control a car going down the road? Uh, example of this, I, we heard some good news this morning of a family who has a, a sick child that it seems like the doctor has found a, a cure, found the problem after a, a time of great distress and, and sorrow. And my, my first response was, those stupid doctors, those idiots, couldn't even figure out something that simple. And, well, is Christ not sovereign over those doctors? Could Christ have given those doctors the very idea the minute the child walked into their office? Certainly he could have, but he didn't. And, and who am I to complain about? My first response should have been, praise God, that it's been found that this family who's gone through this trial uh, has come through it uh, faithfully, that God has strengthened their faith through this. Those are the things that we should be praising God for, not whining and crying about whether the doctors did right or not. And our, our lives are filled with things like that, where something happens and we can say, oh yeah, the big sweep of history, God is in control, but w- when somebody insults me, you know, I, I get to be mad, I get to raise my fist, I get to complain and call that person names. Well, is, is Christ not sovereign over that person? Maybe he just brought them into your life to, to rub a little bit of salt in a big festering wound you have, so maybe you'll look down and take notice of it and deal with it. So we have to see Christ as sovereign over even those little things in our lives, those little interactions. And often we look at it as cruel, as meaningless, as useless, but he has a purpose. He's the head of the church. And his idea is to use that church to display his glory in all of its fullness. And many of the things that he does through his authority and power is to make us better, more godly, so that glory can be displayed in a greater way. And when we don't see it, we still have to trust that that's what he's doing. Uh, illustration from my own life and raising my own kids. We had a problem when they were younger. When I go to a store by myself, uh, they, they, they'd kind of run around and disappear. And, uh, and I couldn't take them in exercise, corporal discipline or anything like that there. I had to just kind of deal with it. And I, I really didn't know what to do. So one day we went to a, a, a record store, just me and, and the kids. And they were doing it. They were kind of running around and, and not, not scream, but just going off where I had to look for them. And you know, that two or three seconds of panic where you lose your kid, that was happening all the time. So what I did was I kind of got them in a place where I could see them and I could just sort of backed away a little bit. And I could see them, I could hear them, but they couldn't see or hear me. And they started, you know, we're fine for about maybe 10 seconds. And I started hearing this, Dad? Dad? And within 30 seconds, they were running down the aisle, screaming, looking for me. And I was in a place where I could just kind of, you know, tuck away and hide so they didn't see me. And they're not in any danger, but looking upon that, it, it could seem cruel. That, oh, he's just a mean dad doing that. He's doing it for fun. And no, it wasn't done for fun. It was done to train them and to teach them why we want them with us. And after that, they never strayed. They were on my leg everywhere we went. And a lot of times what Christ does to us under his authority are things just like that, where instead of looking at him and thanking him for these little things that he's done that are irritations in my life, instead of recognizing that he is sovereign over them like he is everything else, we often escape the fact that we need to, first of all, not be angry, not be frustrated, and to thank him for whatever he's done. Imagine if you believe that whatever people say to you, however bad it is, they're they're sinning, they've got a responsibility to, to not do that, but I've got a responsibility to look at it as if Christ is sovereign over that person's heart, which I believe he is. 
And therefore, it's good for me that that person spoke that way or did that because my first reaction would have been anger instead of forgiveness. So the idea that that Christ is sovereign, yes, over everything. But even those little tiny details of our life, those little irritations that come into your life that your first reaction is to get irritated and get angry and get frustrated, those things are under his authority as well. And learning how to deal with those things as as far as bringing glory to Christ and displaying his glory, I think are far more important than believing he's got control over what Bill Gates does with his farmland. So focus on the things that Christ brings into our life, those little irritations, those little bothersome things that you just think are little flies on the wall, flies in your face that you want to just shout away. No, he's there with everything. Every area, every rule, every authority, every believer in the church, he is over them and directing them to his purposes. And again, the benefit of that is for what? For the church. Everything he does is for the church. He was given as head over the church. So all his efforts, all his work, all his glory is focused in bringing that church to a place where it can indeed be the fullness, the full, beautiful display of his glory. And we're not there yet. One day we will be in heaven when when all the binders are taken off, when sin is taken away, when we're fully and completely indwelt by the Spirit, that glory will be there for everything to see. But until that day, we make small incremental steps, becoming more faithful, becoming more godly, becoming more of the image of his beloved son, displaying more of that fullness, incrementally, bit by bit, piece by piece. So where does all this come from? It comes from Paul's use of Psalm 110, where he saw Christ as the one sitting down at the right hand of God, exercising his authority, his dominion over the earth that comes to us uh, through the church, where now he is head over that church, directing that church and guiding it for his purpose and his glory. Again, so that we are ultimately the fullness of his glory who fills all in all. Now that's good news, isn't it, brethren? That's good news to think of that. When you read Psalm 110 now, instead of your head spinning and thinking, what are these... uh, this womb and this dew. Now we know what Paul's talking about, how this was used in the New Testament. And and to those of you who don't know Christ, well, all I can say is that he is a worthy savior. He is one who truly will save you from your sins. You can either be his enemy and destroyed in the day of judgment, the day of his wrath, or you can submit to him now, a, a wonderful, delightful, gracious savior who will bring you into glory, who will fill you with all of his fullness, who will direct all of his efforts uh, to preserving you, to keeping you, to honoring and glorifying you or spreading his glory of him through you. So there's much hope here for us as believers and there's much hope here for you as unbelievers as well. If you come to Christ, if you believe upon him and trust him that he is the savior, the king, the Lord, the liege who will save you and be gracious to you if you come to him and willingly come to him. So let's pray, brethren, and then we'll we'll be dismissed. Our Father, we are grateful for the truth we've heard, Lord. No matter how uh, feeble the effort was to explain it, we, we trust that your spirit will take some of it, Lord, and work it in our hearts to encourage us, those who are downcast, those who are sorrowful or depressed. Father, use some of this word to, to lift up their heart and, and to encourage them in Christ. Uh, for those who are, are rebellious and, and who have turned against you, Lord, uh, work upon them as well, Father. Soften their hearts. Uh, take their heart of flesh as you promised the saints of old. Uh, remove it, and, and or the heart of stone, remove it and, and give them a heart of flesh. Want a heart that is sensitive to your word, a heart that is renewed, that is invigorated with the life of Christ through your spirit. Help them to see their need for Christ, to believe upon him, and, and trust him fully and completely for the salvation that he freely offers. Lord, bless us the remainder of this day, and bless us throughout the week. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.